Welcome to Behave Intelligently, an uncensored exploration of behavior in the workplace, life, and the larger world. Behave Intelligently is co-hosted by fellow behavioral enthusiasts, Jay Johnson and Mark Garrison, and produced by the amazingly talented team at Coeus Creative Group. Thank you for joining us for this week's discussion, where we're going to talk about difficult conversations. Now, Jay, I know one of the most requested trainings of yours is on difficult conversations. Why do you think people love that training so much or request it so much, other than you being a phenomenal trainer, of course? (laughs) Well, thank you so much for that. But, you know, honestly, I think it's something that it's just such a normal occurrence. I mean, every single day, you may have a conversation. And and when we think about it, it's like, what is a difficult conversation? Is there like a high bar for, okay, now this conversation is difficult or it's not? It's really a continuum. And I would say that people on average, I mean, just normal behavior is to have conversations on a daily basis that may have some level of difficulty with them. Uh, There might be really large ones that we have to have that, you know, are way more difficult, like, asking your, you know, elderly parents to give up their car keys or, you know, depending on what profession you're in, having to deliver really bad news to somebody. But uh, conversations occur and some of them are difficult. So I think this one really just applies to everybody. You're going to have a difficult conversation at some point in your life. Now, difficult conversations don't always have to be like on a, a negative topic, right? We can have positive, difficult conversations. I'm thinking probably one that stands out in my mind that I I would view as a positive is uh, proposing to my, my spouse. That's a difficult conversation to, to, to start, (laughs) right? How do you start it? You, you know, people plan it they think about it. Maybe they overthink it. Does that, does that classify as a difficult conversation in your mind? Yeah. And I I think actually, you know, as you're talking about that, and it's funny because I've not, that's not something I've addressed in the training. I think I'm going to have to add that in. But, you know, when we think about why would that conversation be difficult, it really comes down to the uncertainty of the outcome, right? We don't, we have that nervousness, that fear, that kind of uh, anxiety of, well, what if they say no? What if I screw this up? What if I say the wrong words? What if I mispronounce her name in the middle of, you know, making that, <laughs> making that, you know, proposal and any of those things that kind of fly through your head just on a random thought basis that creates that fear. So yeah, that could very much be a very difficult conversation that has a positive outcome, not even just one that, you know, conversations that are scary because they could have negative outcomes too. So what are some of the different uh, types of difficult conversations you have either coached people through or uh, you know, were brought up in a training of yours? Yeah, I think uh, just right out of the gate, we, given that we've done this for so many different healthcare institutions, delivering mortality news, um, especially for 
some of the physicians and some of the nurses that work in the children's unit and having to deliver. I, I can't imagine, you know, as many times as I've trained it, as many times as I've heard stories, as many times as we've had conversations going back and forth on the topic, I still couldn't fathom the depth of challenge that it would be to have to inform a parent of, you know, a terminality for their children or that, you know, a procedure didn't go the way that they were hoping or that they were wishing. And that's something that occurs on a daily basis. And, and truly, I mean, that's, that industry has my deepest respect for having to navigate something so challenging. Other ones, uh, you know, we work with the Institute of Gerontology at Wayne State University and, you know, elderly. So oftentimes we have conversations about how to navigate conversations about uh, aging parents or aging family members that are no longer able to do the tasks or the simple things that they used to be able to do and being able to navigate conversations with getting them help. Um, finances, that's a big one, right? Like being able to communicate with somebody like you are in massive debt and you're never getting out of it unless you do these things. That, that's probably, you know, in that top three, top four range. And I can imagine um, that topic is, is probably coming up even more uh, in the past year due to impacts that COVID-19 has had on businesses or individuals household incomes too yeah and you know with with all of that going on it just creates even additional uncertainty into those types of conversations which then leads to more panic leads to more mistakes leads to more uh you know even finishing the conversations and not having a full outcome or not having a full resolution to the conversation which can make it even more difficult so there's, I mean, pretty much any profession, I guess maybe one of the other ones that I would say is, and this one's a two-way street, you know, oftentimes if it's an employee that has to leave an organization or has taken a new job, I've had a lot of coaching from that perspective of how do you communicate that to your employer, to your colleagues, to your spouse, to whomever. And then the other way down the street, which is, how do you let an employee go? Or how do you run a disciplinary conversation with an employee that has made mistakes or anything of that nature? I would say that those are probably the most typical. Um, and a lot of those seem maybe. to sort of have a, a negative aspect to it. But in that same HR uh, category, maybe an employee asking their boss or supervisor for a raise or maybe a promotion, I would imagine, is a, is a difficult conversation that happens quite often. Yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting because they do seem to tend towards the negative because if I just have good news, I, nobody really has a difficulty being like, Mark, I've got the best news ever. You're getting a promotion. Like nobody's expecting you to be like, no, I don't want that promotion. <laughs> Get out of my office, right? right. So we kind of anticipate the positive side of that conversation. And I think that that's really telling. One of the things that, you know, I often start the, uh, the training of difficult conversations with is, I want you to imagine a time that you received a phone call from a superior, a boss, an executive that says, I need you to come down to my office. 
most people don't immediately go, I'm getting a raise. I'm, you know, I've, I've been promoted or whatever else. Most people start to go, oh God, what, what did I do? Or am I in trouble or anything else like that? Yeah, you start and, checking your emails. Did I miss something? Uh, voicemails, asking around other colleagues like, hey, have you heard anything? Did anything break? Did, did, did I screw something yeah. up? You know, that's that kind of long walk from, from your office or your cubicle past the water cooler. And you're just kind of checking with everybody, like what's going on? What, what, what am I, what do I need to get ready for? Which is the best because people don't realize it. You have literally just become the complete office gossip by doing so. Because I go, Mark, have you seen the boss today? Do you know how they're feeling? Do you know what's going on? And then I go to the next person and ask, in the meantime, you're like, did you hear that Jay just got called down to the office? Right. Uh, do you know what's going on? And all of a sudden, the whole place, you get down to the office, you open the boss's door, you walk in, they're like, you wanted to see me? And they're like, yeah, we're ordering new pens. Did you want red or blue? Right. And at that point in time, you just want to strangle the boss because it's like, why couldn't you have just said this or been more direct with your you know, request? And I wonder if this stems all the way back to when, when we were young kids and got called to the principal's office. It was never for anything good. I mean, I mean, in some cases it was, you know, you're recognized as student of the month or whatever it might be. But, you know, I wonder if that, that level of uh, fear started at such a young age to get called to whoever's office. Well, I think it really, you know, if we, if we're to dip into the psychology of this, right? Like if we were to take our behavioral intelligence approach it really gets to the kind of core of our survival functions and our limbic system, right? Like it is on high alert to make sure that we're protected at all times. Being singled out can be very scary. This is why a lot of people don't like public speaking or speaking from a stage. You are the target. You are, you're drawing all the attention. All eyes are on you. And if your palms started sweating by me saying that, you might have some anxiety when it comes to that. But in the same way, when we are called out or when we are called into an office or something, we're being singled out. So that survival mechanism kicks into place. And the way that our brain is wired is to protect us from dangers. So immediately it goes into warp speed, trying to think through all of the potential dangers that could be there. And when that happens, number one, we're not as smart. Number two, we get flooded with all those terrible chemicals of adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine that puts us in fight or flight mode. But yeah, I mean, I, I think so. It's not only just, uh, you know, that kindergarten through eighth grade where you get called down to the office. It's really just about survival function and not knowing the uncertainty, the fear of what could this be. And, you know, for those listeners that have been following us for a while, you may have recalled me saying that in our behavioral elements system, I, I have a strong earth side, you know, so I'm, I have a lot of planning nature in what I do. And I can recall all the way back to probably elementary school, but definitely middle school and high school. Um, I was afraid of speaking in front of audiences. I just absolutely hated it. And so my planning nature, and I was involved in a lot of the, the school groups and stuff. And so there's a lot of times where my role or our organization may have been putting on uh, an assembly or something where it would be traditional for me to speak in front of the, the audiences. My planning nature 
saw that well in advance and go, okay, how do we get out of this? How do I avoid this? And I would line up other people to speak and present and do all those things. You know, I did everything that I could to avoid speaking. And it wasn't until I got one of my jobs and I was kind of thrown in the deep end. You know, uh, I had to speak uh, with about 30 seconds notice in front of over 900 people. And that, that could be a little daunting. It was. And, you know, just sort of, I found ripping that bandaid off for me uh, seems to be the way that works best uh, in terms of tackling that difficult conversation or that difficult task, you know, getting around that avoidance of, of the issue. And how far you have come that you're an international trainer at this point in time right. uh, that had, you know, speech anxiety. And I love those, I love those kind of stories, but I think it's, it's also completely metaphorical for the way that we look at difficult conversations is you looked at that and said, what's all these potential negative outcomes, or what if I don't speak well in front of them, or what if they don't like what I have to say, or whatever those fears are. So we you put other people in place or you had other people do it, or you had this. How often have we avoided conversations that need to occur because of those fears or those anxieties or those uncertainties? And we will do whatever it takes <laughs> in order to plan away our ability to actually have the conversation, which ultimately is, is for us and our interpersonal relationships, it's really unhealthy for you to not have the difficult conversation that you know you need to have. And that was, you know, I found every barrier that I could put in between me and what I didn't want to do. And once, uh, by no choosing of my own, got thrown in, uh, I've had no issues with it since. And I have taken that same approach of stop delaying and just kind of ripping that bandaid off as much as I can. I'm, I'm sure I'm not, you know, perfect at it, but... Uh, I just try not to uh, put any of those obstacles there, try not to avoid it. I, I still take a systematic approach. I still prepare myself. I still, you know, do whatever research, homework, planning I need to do. Um, but I've also found when that's not available, I still have enough um, confidence maybe in my, my abilities to tackle whatever that difficult conversation was. Well, and I think it's really funny that you talk about process because you are a process person and I am not. I, I can fall into the systems. I see the value of systems, but it's not necessarily something where I'm like, I'm going to sit down and sketch out a process and do that. But the irony is, is this training or the training that I do on difficult conversations is all about teaching people a process for managing difficult conversations. And when we look at, you know, sort of the system of a difficult conversation, there's a very easy process that can help you essentially get over those hurdles or get over those jumps. And, you know, when you think about it, if you have, it, it's almost like, it's almost like uh, exploring a cave. You may have a fear of the cave or a fear of the dark or anything else, you know, before you wander into that cave. But if I give you a map and outlook and, you know, really help you think through what all the potential dangers are and what all the potential obstacles could be and give you all the tools to do that in advance, you're going to walk into that cave a lot more confident 
And that's really what the difficult conversations is, is how can you create a map of your conversation? Sure, you're not going to be able to predict every outcome, but if I think through the process of it, I can at least reduce the uncertainty enough to say, this conversation needs to happen. This is how I would like it to occur. This is how I'm going to think through these different details. Maybe we can do that for the audience is, is share a little of that process as we kind of go through. So what's step one of this process? I'm guessing it's something about being clear with what you're trying to do. Yeah, to an extent, I actually would take it one step before that. It's, it's you know, because when we think about like, what is the outcome that we want? That's, that's great. Um, and that is a really critical step. But my first thing is, why is this conversation difficult? What is it about this conversation that's giving you anxiety of even thinking about having the conversation? And, you know, there's a host of different reasons. And some of the research that we've done, you know, through our surveys, through our analysis, through our interviews and things like that, there's common reasons across the board that pop up. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if right now, if you're the audience and you're listening, you, maybe you have a difficult conversation in your mind, you've probably started to think about one of the kind of main reasons, like- um, So this would, this would be a good time for them to grab their pen and paper, right? Yeah, sure, grab it right now. We'll give you a couple of ideas, but you know, we don't want the other person to feel bad. We don't wanna feel bad. Uh, we convince ourselves that talking about it's just gonna make it worse, or um, we don't know when the conversation will end. We don't want it to get emotional. We don't, uh, we fear retribution. That's a big one. I don't want to have this difficult conversation because what if they come back and they attack me or it, it taints my, uh, you know, persona at the office, whatever it is. So, I mean, you can think through, but I think number one is naming the fear and calling it out. And because that's going to be really important to say, okay, if that's a fear, eh, how do we get past that fear? How do we take that leap, as you said, you know, just jumping into the fire? But if we don't know what we're kind of avoiding, it's really difficult to do so. Well, that makes a lot of sense and it helps them kind of identify the behaviors that they'll need to uh, address, to improve, um, maybe even practice. Yeah, and as, so as we kind of define why is this, you know, what is this difficult conversation? I, we'll use an example, an example that I use often, having to ask an elderly parent for, uh, to take their keys away, right? Why? Because, you know, maybe they get confused, maybe their eyesight's not as good anymore, maybe their reflexes are a little slower, and they're a danger to themselves and to all living beings that are around them. So it's time to have this conversation. When you're thinking about that and you know that that's the generalized topic area. Okay, well, what's what's next? You know, what what's a great outcome for this? Well, that I go to my, you know, parent or go to, you know, my my grandparent and say, I think it's time to give up your keys. And they're like, you know what, Jay, that's right. I believe you. I, I concur with that assessment. Here's my keys. Thanks for being a great kid. Okay, probably not going to be the case. So that's where we have to start really investing ourselves into the fear. We know what we need out of the conversation. We want the promotion. We want uh, the discipline or the, you know, the other person to understand. We want the yes to the proposal as I'm now integrating into my future talks on this. 
we know what we want out of it, but there's a lot of fears that get in the way of us even thinking about that. And so, because I've had to have that conversation um, essentially with my my grandma. You know, she was getting up there in age and just didn't have the ability to or or shouldn't be driving anymore. And you know, we had talked as uh, family members. How do we how do we approach this? How do we bring it up? Um, you know, luckily for us, I mean, she just wasn't driving that much anyways, right? So, and I know mm-hmm. that scale can change if the scale of difficulty can change if uh, it's someone who is actively driving a lot. Um, so it went a little easier for us, but, you know, we defined it, but, you know, we were approaching it going, we know what we want the outcome to be. We don't know how she's going to react. And, you know, there's times where she could be really, really stubborn and, sure. you know, could, you know, could dig in on it and go, no, I don't want to. Um, so we we figured that step out. What happens after that? I think one of the things, and this is where empathy and, uh, and truly cognitive empathy comes into play, right? So if, if we're to look at this and say, all right, we know uh, grandma in this case, she's probably not not it's not a good thing for her health or for other people's health for that she continues to drive but let's look at this from grandma's position okay what are you asking me to do because it's not just easily so easily to say you're asking grandma to hand over uh you know a block of keys some metal object because there's emotions and there's feelings and there's attachments behind those so i even outside of you know maybe she loves her car not even i'm talking about that I'm talking about what you're doing is you're saying, grandma, give me your freedom. Grandma, give me your, I, I'm the kid. We're flipping the scripts. Grandma, I'm the authority now. You're not. We're saying, grandma, uh, you know, you're going to have to be reliant on everybody else around you and you're not going to have an autonomy anymore. Uh, gr- all of those things, right? So taking a step back and really putting yourself into the, the position of the person whom you're gonna have this difficult conversation with and saying, how are they going to experience this? How are they going to feel about this? What are they gonna be thinking? What are they gonna be emoting? And doing almost like an empathy map of what that experience will be for the person on the other side of the conversation. That's gonna give you some really good insight as to how do I frame this conversation? How do I start this conversation? Do I start with a question? Do I start with a direct statement? Um, do I start at a specific time? That empathy aspect of it is huge in the difficult conversations. The problem is, is that if we have to have the difficult conversation, it's very hard to get out of our own self of, oh my gosh, I'm going to experience this, or this is going to be really tough for me to say to them, or this is good. I don't want to have to deal with uh, the retribution or the, the, whatever the fears are that I have about that conversation. So taking that step back and, and actually doing that empathy stage, huge impact on the success ratio. You know, and I found too, a big factor after finishing that conversation was also the follow through on our part, right? So we were taking away her freedom of being able to go and drive and, and do whatever on her own schedule, which, like I said, in this scenario, she wasn't doing as much anyways. A lot of times it was, hey, can you come over and, you know, take me grocery shopping or do this or that. Um, but it was making that commitment of being available to go and, and, and help her go wherever she needed to go. 
right? We were taking that freedom away, but we needed to follow through with still being there and supporting uh, in those endeavors of leaving the house or, or whatever you want to call it. Well, and I, I, I've heard that being a reason why people haven't had the conversations like, I don't know that I can commit to taking them to the grocery store every day or going to McDonald's for them to get their, you know, weekly uh, egg McMuffin or whatever it is. So it, it's kind of funny that you say that on the follow through, you know, that's really kind of a next step in the process is getting the motivation to actually have the conversation. So when we're thinking about all those fears, you know, one of the things that we recommend is putting together like a pro and con list. Okay, what are the cons of this conversation? Well, all right, all those fears could get emotional, could be, you know, could get a re negative response. Um, I'm going to have to do something different or my lifestyle is going to have to change or I'm going to have to be accepting of whatever kind of, you know, consequences of the conversation. So writing down all those cons of the conversation, and this is the big challenge. And this is actually where, if I'm coaching somebody on a difficult conversation, if they come up with 25 reasons not to have the conversation, almost in every case, 80% of them are completely unfounded. They're just, they're, they're conjecture, there's no rational basis, they're built out of fear, they're built out of that protective limbic system. So what I force them to do is to have an equal number of positive reasons to have the conversation and help them define their purpose in having the conversation, right? Like, because if I was having this conversation with my father, I probably wouldn't approach it as, dad, you know, I'm worried about your safety because we're a bunch of roughnecks, you know, our safety was never, uh, you know, we, we would hang from trees and, you know, with one hand and use the other hand to, to operate a chainsaw to cut a branch down. Worrying about safety would not be it. But if I said, hey, dad, you know, I'm really worried about other people's safety. You know, if you, if something happened and, and you, uh, you know, something happened and you accidentally hit somebody else, how would you feel in that situation? And that's going to change the dynamic of that conversation for him because it's no longer about him being in control of himself or his own safety. It's about other people's safety. And now that's, you know, a difference. But going through that pro list and saying, okay, well, this could be a positive outcome. This could happen. We could have a deeper relationship, a better connection. I would be able to solve my future anxieties because a lot of times that difficult conversation, all the anxiety that you're housing now helps to be released after you have that conversation. But getting that purpose in mind is something that you're gonna go back to a thousand times over when the conversation gets difficult. If you have a very clear purpose, you can go back to that. Even when the conversation gets hard and dad's like, oh, you're gonna talk to me about your driving? How many states have you had to take a driving test in? Uh, you know, and sarcasm or an attack comes or whatever it is like, dad, this isn't about that. Yes, you're right. I, I have had to take driving tests in 13 different states, but this is about this and this is about now, you know, staying with that purpose and staying with those positive reasons to have the conversation. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I like that you force people to have an equal number on, on both sides. And, you know, we probably did something like that just naturally, but without actually writing it down um, because we did try to focus on, you know, the positives. And, and when we approach, you know, when we approached my grandma on it, I mean, it, it, we did try to approach it from that positive perspective. And 
Um, you know, I think that is why things went well with that transition. And, you know, if you always tackle things from the negative side, I, I think, you know, people would find themselves in more of a defensive. You know, if, if you tackle, if, if you approach your dad with a negative issue, I could see him being much more defensive and, and um, pulling back from even thinking about having that discussion, you know, just shutting it down right away. Well, and, and that's, you know, that's the interesting thing is all those uncertainties, all those things that we have in our brain, some of them are concocted, some of them are not, but how we choose to have that conversation, right? Like if we choose to walk into there and, you know, very solemnly say, dad, I think it's time for you to give up your keys. The moment that I say that, I might reconsider my language and say, dad, I think it might be time for us to find options for you to have mobility as you continue aging. I'm not taking anything away from you at that point in time. We need to find options for you to have mobility and to have opportunities for freedom. How might we go about doing that? And posing a question, and that's called a calibrating question. Oftentimes when you're asking, how might we go about doing that? I can't just answer yes or no. So now the limbic system and the other person has to shut down a minute and let their cognitive, rational neocortex kick in to try to answer a question such as that. That's why it's more calibrating in nature. Um, but yeah, when we think about it, oftentimes we take our own fear, our own anxiety, and we transfer it onto the conversation. And if we're really going to take a step back and be a little bit more logical, we might just be able to find that situation or that scenario or that right way to approach a conversation that makes it less painful for everybody involved. You know, and as people decide on having this conversation, to me, it almost sounds like they should create a list of why you need to have it. And on the other side, you know, if you're not going to have it, what's going to, what's that pain point or what's going to continue? And that is a great point, right? Like, cause think about it every time, you know, if I have to sit there and I think, okay, am I worried about my dad going out and driving in the evening? Or am I worried about grandma taking the car out and getting lost? Am I worried about that? Well, that's an everyday concern or that's an everyday worry. And that worry and that concern is gonna build up. So if I can think about the pain that exists now and what could be resolved with a positive outcome, that may be the tipping point that says, okay, enough is enough. I just need to have this conversation. I need to jump in. So let's you know, go through the process. Let's define why it's difficult. Let's come up with all the reasons why it's important to have the conversation. And then we can worry and, and only then. So after all of that's done, then we can actually start thinking about how to have the conversation when to have the conversation, where to have the conversation. Um, what will I do if the conversation goes well? What will I do if the conversation goes poorly? And thinking through some of those more mechanical pieces of the difficult conversation. And I have to imagine the uh, sort of those mechanical of when, where, and how are pretty critical in how both parties might react or how you, you know, how the person might be able to influence some of the discussions. Uh, versus, you know, if, if you choose something that's more favorable to or, towards your side, but not towards dad or grandma, they're already going to be in a somewhat maybe uncomfortable environment 
which maybe puts their guard up a little bit stronger or something like that. So, so maybe really thinking through those steps of figuring out how can we make them the most comfortable to then approach the conversation? Yeah. And, and I think that that's something like a couple of just real quick tips, be direct, you know, don't be like, we need to talk and just leave it at that. Right. Like having some level of direct, like, Dad, I think it's time for us to have a conversation about mobility. When would be a good time for you to have that conversation? And if they say, never, I'm not talking to you about that, you just, well, why don't we check in next week and let's see if we can have that conversation. And, and just being persistent, uh, kind, gentle, but persistent, naggingly persistent, as I have been called before, um, <laughs> I'll win through attrition, right? <laughs> and I would imagine, you know, avoiding uh, bringing it up for the first time at Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner or something like that, where everybody in the family's around. Yeah, nobody likes to be embarrassed in public. And so if it's a sensitive conversation, making sure that you're choosing the right time and, you know, you can choose the time. Do I address the conversation before, during or after, right? Um, so, for example, do I address it before my dad has some kind of uh, issue in the car or do I address it after there's an issue. Do I address it, you know, in the middle of it when, you know, he runs over the neighbor's mailbox as he's pulling out of the driveway and be like, see, dad told you, let's have this conversation. All of those are strategy and they should be thought about in advance and should be thought about in terms of when is the best time to have that conversation. Uh, Thanksgiving dinner when all the family's around and it's embarrassing, maybe that's not the right time. But then in some cases, when all the families around and all the support networks around, maybe it is the right time. And that's a decision that you can make if you're planning and processing and thinking strategically ahead. And using a positive scenario, you know, if your significant other is more of a private person and not really a sports fan, probably would avoid the big jumbotron proposal, right? Because that's they're out of their comfort zone. It's a big public display and they're not a big sporting person. So just because maybe you like sports doesn't make it a perfect scenario for them to say yes. Yeah. Have you ever seen any of those videos where they say no? Oh my gosh. In front of everybody. Yeah. Didn't think that one through. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it is thinking about the other person and not always just thinking about what you might like. So you, you got to step out of your your shoes and think about the other side and go into an environment that is uh, conducive to, to them and the outcome that you would want. And that's that empathy aspect, right? Like even at a cognitive empathy level, we really are capable of kind of stepping in and saying, how might this person feel about this? How might they react? What might they see? What might they think? What might they do? That's a, that's a great tip is really engage in that empathy and, and try to understand it, not from our own perspective, but from the perspective of the person that we're going to have the conversation with. And I would also, you know, one, oh, go ahead. I was going to say one other tip that I would look at is, you know, when we think about how people essentially uh, get to the point of, uh, they get to the point of having this conversation using some level of inclusive language, right? So if I'm having a difficult conversation with maybe a colleague at work, how can I say, hey, you know, I'm noticing that 
we're struggling to connect during a meeting. And I feel sometimes that, uh, you know, I feel sometimes that maybe I'm not being heard and I wouldn't be surprised if you felt the exact same way. How might we collectively together, us, let's, address this as we move forward? I'm using a calibrating question, but I'm also putting we together as the same tribe to address the problem, which is not each other. It's actually the, you know, the, the behavior or whatever it is. So kind of taking a step back and having an inclusive, like grandma, how might we be able to solve this mobility issue in the future? The issue is not you, grandma, the issue is mobility. And that's what we're going to address today together as a team, let's us, we. And I would also say, you know, staying calm, um, my personality is a very calm personality typically. And, you know, trying to keep your voice at a certain level that you're not getting aggressive in tone or things along those lines. If you can stay calm, kind of relax throughout the, the situation uh, helps bring comfort to both sides and allows that conversation to occur. The other thing I think is important and, you know, I notice this a lot because I train a lot in the introvert and extrovert area is introverts sometimes may take a while to process something. And so, you know, keeping, being aware, I should say, of some pauses. Silence is okay. That doesn't mean that uh, someone's mad or angry. They might be processing that or thinking through those things. You know, if they have an earth personality or, or an earth type, the earth types are very process focused. So they're thinking through all of those steps and they might just need a moment and they just may not be talking it all out loud. So be calm, enjoy the silence for a moment uh, and just allow those steps to occur. Which can be really hard when somebody's not responding to us or, you know, and we might just feel like we have to fill the space. Well, every moment, you know, if we're teaching negotiations, every moment you're talking, you're losing <laughs> is, is kind of can be something similar in difficult conversations. I think my final point would be remember what your purpose is. You know, no matter what pain points it is, no matter how upset grandma gets at me or dad gets at me for having this conversation, no matter what my fears are, is there safety? Is there well-being? Is it worth it? And if I think about that purpose, and, and regardless of what the situation is, whether that's having a disciplinary conversation with an employee, if that employee improves their behavior, is this conversation worth it? Well, yeah, probably it is. Is you know, having that difficult, or if they say yes to my proposal, is this difficult conversation worth it? Yes, it probably is. Keeping that purpose in mind and going back to it whenever you have difficulty, but also when you have these difficult conversations, and I think this is where some people really kind of miss the boat, is that they start the conversation, there's resistance, there's emotion, there's argument or whatever, and then they drop it. And it's almost like you have to start over at that point in time. So if you initiate this conversation, make sure that you end or have an end game at the, at, at the conclusion of that conversation, even if it doesn't resolve everything like, okay, when can we bring this up again and have this conversation, you know, continue this conversation? That's an end game. That's at least an ask at the end of the difficult conversation. Don't finish without a destination, essentially, is, is kind of that last point that I have. Any final thoughts from you, Mark? You know, mine is just that 
difficult conversations are going to be needed and be ready and don't delay. I mean, you just got to rip that bandaid off and take that step. Um, putting it off is just kicking the can down the road and it doesn't, you're still going to have to address it at some point. And kicking that can down the road is your heart attack because all that time you're experiencing anxiety. So hopefully these tips today can help you get into that next conversation or whatever that difficult conversation is that you're facing. We'd love to hear about it. So if you want to share or if you want to talk about a difficult conversation you've had and the outcomes, please feel free to uh, send us an email at podcast at coescreativegroup.com. Uh, but that's all the time we have this week. So I want to say thank you for tuning in to this episode of Behave Intelligently. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. Let us know what you think. And uh, again, send us an email to podcast at coescreativegroup.com. If you want to learn more about Coes Creative Group, visit our website or connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Tune in next time when we talk more about behaving intelligently.